very nice to see you again after one year. Right, remember last a Sunday last year, some of you are familiar faces. <laughs> um, I suggest we have a little bit, just a, f a few minutes, a few short minutes, those who are impatient or those who are impatient, <laughs> just to let the mind settle down and silence in silence. Yeah. So you can just close your eyes gently. And just think of it as a relaxation. There's nothing to do. Just letting the thoughts just slow down, calm down. And you can even close your eyes. It's even better. Then you have more chance to be less distracted by the external situation. So, um, today, the title of the talk is not a title which I have chosen. Um, it's uh, somebody wrote this title. We have a, sh a blank sheet of paper, maybe a few weeks before the Vasa begin. And we uh, usually are invited to write some titles ourselves, the whole community. And then Ajanamaru with the abbot just pick up some of the titles for the number of Sunday we have through the three months during which we give a public talk. And uh, this one was actually uh, chosen by Ajahn. <coughs> Amongst the, the, the titles, he chose one, this title to, uh, when he was going to teach this Sunday. In fact, he's not able to teach today, so he asked me if I could replace him. So, I always enjoy uncertainty in a way. And so the fact of getting a title that I don't choose makes me always very happy because in a way it tickles my exploring mind. I like it really kind of enlivens 
my, uh, um, you know, my things that I've been very joyful is to explore and kind of study and examine things more deeply, more, um, you know, see, get to know the association, how they get associated, things get associated with each other, their meanings, even go back to Latin. I haven't studied Greek, but I studied Latin. So I find that exploration always, to me, very, very pleasant. So the title uh, is Compassion Out of Fashion. What a title. So I was so, you know, I have to be very careful because I have a great tendency for humor. And it kind of comes out before I even know it sometimes, so I have to be cautious. And uh, especially with in fashion, out of fashion, we can make lots of stories from my point of view. But I was curious enough to ask the person who wrote this, a member of our community, what motivated this person to write this. And it was very simple, actually. It came back to a very simple reason. This person found that um, in some school of Buddhism, um, the word compassion, or let's say the teaching on compassion, is very much in the forefront of their path and their practice. So compassion is made much of and talked about quite a lot on the path. And because this person is on the tradition, which is our tradition, forest tradition and the Theravada tradition, uh, the, the recognition that this notion of compassion is not talked about as much, maybe like in the Mahayana tradition, is not so, it doesn't appear as important. So this is a topic that I find actually excellent because I have studied it myself personally, the different tradition, not in depth, but uh, just reading, meeting people, meeting teacher, even doing retreat in the Mahayana tradition, and so on. So just having a sort of wide sense of wide field, how to explore this. I know certainly well the aspect of compassion in this tradition. I've been challenged by my lack of compassion in this tradition, in the human world, so in, in the tradition of humans as well. <laughs> Cats and dogs, I love unconditioned dog for them. Human is more difficult, you've noticed, right? I always kind of joke when I do a meta meditation on my retreat, and I have maybe 40, 50 people in front of me, I do the traditional list of you know, the teacher, the parents, the husband, wife, brothers and sisters, children, and so on. And faces can just stay really straight. And you don't have a clue what's going on, but I don't project particularly. I leave people alone. And by the time I say, well, now we can do your pet dog, and suddenly the whole room is radiating with this divine energy that just pulsate in a kind of most extraordinary instantaneous way. I've always been puzzled by that. I can suppose it is no, England is known for having probably one of the highest love for their pets. I don't know what comp where the comparison comes from, but certainly it's true. As soon as we talked about compassion or loving kindness or meta for one's pet, there is an immediate, immediate heart-opening experience 
That may not be the case for everybody. Some of you may have really aversion for pets, but um, anyway, that was my uh, kind of uh, observation you know, over the years. So I discuss. I like to discuss the subject a little bit with my friends, not discuss it in, in great lengths, but just just to you know find out how they think about it, compassion, or what what is their experience, you know. And it was very nice to actually uh, have a, a little chat with one of our eldest teacher in England. He's not here, so, and he's a good friend. And uh, he said, "Well, you're on the same page, you know. I'm, I'm giving tonight a, a talk on on the fatigue of compassion, compassion fatigue." <laughs> and this is something that uh, people, you know, forget. Uh, what happened when you practice compassion? So, you can see in the world, the world is actually, wherever you turn, there's always a lot of, um, you give an impression that there is a, f a fairly, a fair amount of a great compassion sort of uh, wish and great compassion perspective on things, you know, to the empath empathy with others, uh, all the mind training, emotional training, ca ca psychotherapy training that may, most human beings are going through now, you know, to t sort of get, help them to understand their resistance to life, their neurotic tendencies, their, you know, the, the fact that if they keep on projecting on others, you know, their misery, their world is not going to improve and they're going to feel bound again and again. And also, you know, there is a lot of knowledge of the health of a compassionate mind. You know, the, 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 the benefits of having a kind mind. So, um, there is a great interest, as much as there is another part of it, which is the, you could say, the other side of compassion, the opposite side of compassion would be anger, hatred, uh, you know, horrible kind of uh, behavior with people, with groups of people, with individuals within the family, in the country, in the world. So there is this kind of two forces playing, like, uh, you know, with each other. Great compassionate groups, you know, fighting for the benefit of others, for the, the, the well-being of others, for fairness, you know, for uh, helping the world and so on. And then, you know, like, let's say, uh, people fighting for animals, you know, not killing animals and so on. And somebody was telling me about a story not long ago about a little old lady in 80, uh, 88 years old had been put on Facebook by her families and members of her family. Now, she obviously could all, you know, use a computer still. Some elderly people are amazing like that, you know. Their faculties carry on really well. And she got herself onto Facebook, and apparently, she just shared innocently that she was still eating meat, but from farms where the animals had a good time before the, you know, the a good, good life before they get turned into beef, into beef, <laughs> into steaks. You know. And apparently, this poor old lady got an absolutely rainfall of attacks for still being for the killing of animals. So this lady was innocently sharing a good heart, 
I was saying she was really conscious that animals must not suffer, but occasionally she had some meat, and she chose, because she could afford it perhaps, she could choose where they were happy, where the animals were happy. And then came a, a, you know, a real weapon, you know, hundreds of weapons maybe, uh, you know, sort of criticizing her and attacking her, this poor 88-year-old lady. Now, you can see what I'm talking about. You know, the compassion for the animals, Suddenly, one poor old lady just innocently admitting she's eating a bit of meat once or twice a week, and that's it. The opinionated mind is so strong that any kind of kindness and love for the animals just goes out of the window and is replaced by a monstrous mind just of hate and fury. So, to me, it doesn't surprise me when you look at your mind for many decades. That's a, that's a human mind. The human mind is like that. You can't trust it for very long. When it has a good thought, just act on it before it starts thinking about it. <laughs> right? Just get on and do it. <laughs> so you can see, I have been interested myself in this topic because... I have also, um, there's, there, there's a humorist who doesn't, not to sort of, well, anyway, humorist I know, uh, I know his humor, and uh, sometimes I look, I've looked at it, and he's very, very funny because he's very intelligent and talks about certain aspects of the world which are in a brilliant way. And one of, that, one of them is about his, his really great friend, his, his hubby, not hubby, his, um, his friend you know, who has been on Greenpeace for years and years and years, you know, and so on. And his friend comes to see him, and he's totally de depressed on the, on the way to a nervous breakdown, you know. And uh, he tells him that uh, the reason why he feels like this, you know, he's kind of lost all, her, all, all hope about those Greenpeace things and so on. And uh, he, he, he bluntly, as a humorist, he could say that. He gives us a, a kind of... A, you could say a taste of what happened to the mind of one human being. So his mind just turned around and he said, well, if I had to do it again, I'll just shut, I would just shoot them all. They're wells. He was on the wells, sort of saving wells, you know. If I had to do it again, I'll just shut them. <laughs> this is a joke, you know, by the way, just, just, you know. This is what happened, unfortunately, when we try to, uh, you know, see, if compassion can actually be not just in fashion, but to realize that it's a natural state when the mind is become more enlightened to itself, it's actually a normal feeling, believe it or not. You don't have to work at it, even though the Buddhist teaching does guide us to, um, you know, to develop our thinking mind in such a way that it incorporates compassion. Most of our thinking mind is very... Uh, critical, you notice, you know, certainly mine was very critical, but I notice everybody else's mind around me, the, the critical faculty can be positive or negative. So sometimes we don't know which way to go. And we, we look at something and it could be quite okay. You haven't really looked at that thing very deeply, but immediately the critical mind goes at it and see immediately, I don't like that, I don't like that, this is not good enough, etc., etc. Right? We don't take time to actually observe, take in something, see the mind being saying, no, that's no good, 
and then get stuck and imprisoned by the no mind. Instead of opening to the no, opening to the yes, okay, and then have a vision that comes from this, um, you know, this broader view, what we call right view. The broader view is like being able to see compassion is one way, hate is the other, and in the mind you have those two forces that keep acting and, you know, fighting each other. One is, is called Mara, you know, in Buddhism it's uh, the devil of the Buddhist teaching, Satan of the Buddhist teaching, and my favorite translation of, of definition of Mara is actually come from the Sufi tradition. Because that's the one that speaks to me most practically and experientially as an experience, personal experience. And it say, if you want to know the devil, you don't need to look very far. Just look at yourself. Yeah, it's me in technicolor when you say that, you know. It's oneself, isn't it? Always fighting, always having a problem, always, a, you know. Once the Buddha, fortunately, I find, this really, I have so much gratitude for the Buddha for having been able to show us the middle way, which exactly what this middle way is about, is this having tools, having a path, having material, having teachings that enable us to be on the tight rope of the middle way. It's a tight rope for a long time because as soon as we walk on it, we, go, we fall on the left or on the side. Before we know it, we like something and then it doesn't take that much to find something defectuous about it, you know, something that's not right, something that could be better improved. And I'm talking about myself as much as maybe this speaks to you as well. So, um, so definitely, compassion is a very important part in the Buddhist teaching of this particular tradition, of the forest tradition, the Theravada tradition. In fact, without it, uh, you know, we would never know the mind because the mind itself, when the, if you, what I have experienced in my own life as a nun in the early years, straight from the beginning, is that I was quite empathetic by nature and quite, you could say, I didn't call it co compassionate, but empathetic. I could feel the, the misery of others, you know, and if I had time, I'll be with them. And if I have time, not time, I'll just go off to my own thing. You know, it wasn't quite a very, a very kind of sensitive empathy. You know, if I, if I liked the person, I could be empathetic, you know. If I, uh, if I, if I was in a good mood, I could be empathetic. But I didn't have yet uh, the, the mind that is naturally empathetic but because of its openness to others. It's a, a broad, broadening its view to, of the world. You know, suddenly, oh, that's not, just not me that exists on this planet. And it sounds really silly. You see, of course not, of course not. But yet, we often live in that way. We often live with me first. We often live and see the world with me first. And others, maybe some other, you know, later on. Our functioning mind is around me first thoughts, me first perception, me first mental formation, me first. When you look at the sense consciousness, is looking around, 
you will see that the story that's built up is about me first, very often. Why? There's nothing wrong with it. Your memory is in this body and mind. You understand? I don't have the memory of any of you. So me first is not an anatem, you know. It's not a, a, a nasty things. It's just a, a facts. That's all. People tend to think ego, I, should be labeled the devil, the terrible thing. And, in, and, and many years ago, when there was conference on psychotherapy and Buddhism, the psychotherapists used to have a good laugh saying the, the Buddhists never dare saying they have an ego. Because many Buddhists consider the ego as a terrible thing to have, as if you had a plague or something. Do you know? But actually, the ego is, I often say to people, don't beat your ego up. Don't beat your ego. It's the only thing that you have to be enlightened. So bow to it with a Dhamma. <laughs> bow to this ego and to use this ego ex experience to walk the path. Do you understand? Don't beat yourself up because you exist as an I. And in fact, I was very happy to uh, hear from a very well-known teacher who's Portrait is actually in the temple, Ajahn Panyawado. You'll see he's next to Ajahn Man. And when I was listening to his teaching on tapes uh, that he had uh, given to monks in Thailand, to Western monks in Thailand, um, he said something which, in a way, I was very pleased. He seemed to agree, quote unquote, with my view on this. <laughs> But from hearing it from him as a very experienced meditator and very wise teacher, it was very nice for me to see the reinforcement of something which I felt, but I didn't quite dare make it public yet. So that was simply, Ajahn Panyawado used to say, said, you know, in Buddhism, people say, oh, there's no, you know, um, there's no ego, there's no ego, etc. You know, it's a, an ego, it sort of should not be there or whatever. You know, the ego should not exist, you know, should be disappeared, disappear, should be uh, eliminated. But he said, actually, my, in my experience, there's plenty of egos. They just come and go, and they are anicca dukkha that's all. The Buddha didn't say, you know, there's no ego. The ego is empty of self. The ego is empty of me. There is no my ego. It's just simply, it has no substance. Right? But... Right now, you see my eye is a, is a non-teaching. When I mean my kuti, it's a non-writing a letter, or you know, it can be seen in that way. A different kind of pieces of the mind that come together to do the job. I don't have to be like this in my kuti, <laughs> right? So um, just to go back to the um, you know how important this um, uh, compassion is in on the path of uh, the uh, you know the end of uh, anger uh, greed hatred and delusion right i just want to say step a little bit to see that in the mahayana tradition you have to realize that the path is leading to being coming bodhisattva you know so it's very important bodhisattva is known as the most compassionate beings you know so the, the, you know, the, the importance of compassion to be a true bodhisattva, emphasizing for the whole world and with this vow of not being free until the last bait of grass has been liberated. 
Now, one case, you know, I read many books on this theme, and so I know that it can be taken in a different way, interpreted in a different way, either literally or otherwise. But in the in the Pahasani Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha's the Buddha teaches us in this tradition, um, you know, amongst the the the, the second uh, the in the wisdom section, you have right view and right intention. Now, right intention, which sometimes is translated as right thought, okay, is is composed of three things. One is uh, the thought of renouncing, and two are about compassion. The compassion, the uh, non-ill will and non-harming, okay, which is another definition of compassion. Somebody who does not does not hurt anybody, refrain from hurting anyone, and refrain from hurting this person, that person we live with all the time. 24 hours a day. And that's the first thing myself I noticed when I took the precept at the beginning uh, when I became an Anagarika. And the first precept is about to refrain from har harming any living creatures. Now, as Achen Sumedho will say, of course, you know, none of us are killers, murderers, throat cutters, and so on, you know. But, you know, we don't do anything like that, hopefully. If you have done, you might not be here, or you have done your time to come back in, in this room. <laughs> but, you know, when we don't study this teaching, we have a mind that is quite unrefined, in a way, towards itself. Our knowledge of the mind is unrefined, unsubtle. So you say, well, I don't kill anybody. That's fine. I keep the, the, I keep the precepts. Once you bring your attention to your mind through meditation, guided by a teaching, like a, a teacher and the teaching of Ajahn Sumedho that came from Ajahn Shah, that came from the Buddha, Ajahn Man, Ajahn, and the Buddha, you know. So the, all this stream of wisdom coming through, then you begin to, to see that, um, as I refined my attention myself, I said, well, I don't hurt intentionally anybody. and I never do that. But by golly, am I critical of myself? I am so annoyed with myself so often. Am I so unhappy with myself so often? Not now, by the way. I'm talking about the beginning of my life. <laughs> Things have changed radically. <laughs> no. But at the time when I was an Anagarika, I saw that straight away. I am annoyed with others. I am critical of others, you know, sometimes constantly. Sometimes with the illusion that I'm being constructive. You know, the false illusion of imp imp improving somebody else's mind and well-being. <laughs> you can be easily, you know, uncompassionate. So these things, you know, are not something to judge. This is another great uh, asset of this Buddhist teaching, something that is so healthy for me and for many, many people. That's why people turn to Buddhism, because it speaks to them straight away. Like you can think whatever you want. You are free to walk the path. You don't have to believe anything. There is no dogma. But there is a responsibility of starting to use one's mind 
to be a real torch that can light ourselves so that we know who we are and we know how to develop in our mind-heart life qualities that leads to liberation and on top of that, qualities that leads to well-being, happiness, conducive to harmony, uh, qualities that empower you with confidence and radiance in yourself, the feeling that you know you um, you can forgive yourself easily, you can forgive others easily as well. You know, this is something that comes as a package. And the first thing I noticed is that when I was making peace, you know, when if I went through a lot of suffering, being hurt by this, angry with that. Uh, I noticed, I was very sweet recognition, that every time I could make peace with my own suffering, then what happened? You can guess, some of you. You, may, you would also make peace with the suffering of others, you know, with their stupidity as well. Because my suffering also came together with my critical mind, you know, being, you should be more wise, how stupid you are, how stupid they are, you know, and... God, you know, she's so deluded. And then you're so deluded yourself. I mean, you spend years, months, years on, you know, on the same refrain, on the same kind of old disc, you know, the old, um, you know, CD inside yourself. And so, you know, sometimes we don't realize what we carry around with ourselves day and night. But the beauty of this uh, recognition of our mind through meditation, through the torch of mindfulness, the powerful torch of this beautiful quality of mindfulness, which works perfectly when there is this balance between with effort, with concentration, and not just that, but with a whole life re, re, not reorganized, but sometimes you need to let life just be as it is to be able to see the imbalance of life. Do you understand? That's, in a way, I would say that's what the monastery does. It doesn't make you do this externally. You have to have a robe. You have time. I've never watched my clock as much as when I was a nun. I never had a clock as a laywoman. I just look at the clock on, you know, I never had to. I just knew, knew vaguely what I have to do, and I could see on the clock in the street that was enough for me not to be late. Here, you have to really watch my, from very early early time. You know, you suddenly have to look at the time. You know, say this meeting, this, and you have to do this, and work meeting and meal, and then you know going back to your kuti and then coming back for something else, and the pujas in the morning, pujas in the evening, and so on. So when you um, you know when you examine that and you see that working at your own suffering through the power of acceptance. Through the power, of course, I said already, the torch of clear seeing and mindfulness, and emotionally, the feeling of acceptance of yourself as you are, which is already, without knowing it, a form of compassion. In fact, I, I don't know, some people, I've heard some teachers saying the same thing, but some people didn't feel at all what I, what I, I saw myself. I used to think to myself, gosh, you know, I mean, I'm going to tell it to you bluntly. It was more refined when I said it in my mind. But basically, bluntly, it was like, gosh, to, to, to watch all day long this un unsatisfactory being, this really difficult mind. This is, mindfulness is really an act of compassion. 
it's, you don't call it the compassion, but there's something that suffuses mindfulness. I don't know what it is, no idea. But to be that patient with something so boring like me, so unsatisfactory as me, so miserable sometimes as me, not always, there's always joy as well, you have to have already connected with a, you know, with a stream of compassion somewhere. And I think that stream pervades mindfulness, even though we talk about mindfulness being neutral. I teach like that, you know, neutral, doesn't have views and opinions about it. It's the mind that sees, it's the mind that knows, it's the mind that is conscious, aware, and so on. And so, but this mindfulness, I always like the idea, I don't know if it is true or not, the, I like the idea that it's something that is, you know, has the quality of patience, not just me being patient, but it's quality of patience together, inher inherent in it, to be able for me to kind of observe myself with such a, a patient, enduring kind of feeling. Now, of course, there are other qualities like confidence and faith, you know, the quality of uh, trust and so on. So, um, when you um, cultivate or develop meditation practice, if you don't have, uh, you know, I was with a teacher who emphasized much more following his own tradition, emphasize much more the approach and the attitude towards your meditation practice, rather than the technique, the method, or the uh, you know some particular techniques to develop the mind. And of course, that suited me perfectly. Even though I had trained as a dancer for a period of time. And I had chosen a technique, which was a Martha Graham technique, and doing some ballet as well, but mostly the last thing I liked was this technique. And interestingly enough, when I heard Ajahn Sumedho uh, talk about the approach and the attitude of one's own being and heart and mind towards our way of looking at that, you know, towards the way we look at ourselves, then that was something that spoke to me immediately. I don't know why, I can't explain it, but I always felt that um, going towards anything with loving kindness is probably much more useful than going at it, going at it with my willful mind, with my desire mind, with my um, you know project mind, my goal-oriented mind, and so on. So even though I kind of speak about them as if they were really negative. They're not negative, they're just a habit, you know. It's just a habit of the mind. You know, we just learn. We Sometimes we are born with a very strong will, and then you can develop that will and use it in the world. It's actually even, you know, you are compensated to use your will and, and be really forthright, you know, in, in, some, in some milieu, you know, in some situation. So, you know, that kind of quality that is inherent in the meditation practice, without it, you will not be able to really see the mind as it is. Now, we're very good to get into a place of one-pointedness in meditation. We may not be very good, but we know what it means. Intellectually, we know what it means. We say just 
look at the candles or look at a, man, a little word in your, in, your, in your mind or just focus maybe on the light you have in your mind or just do this. This is so simple, you know. I mean, said is simple. Done, it takes, you know, some kind of training, okay? But in a way, for the mind, it's a simple exercise, you understand? Okay? That goes to concentration, and concentration has existed for maybe till the beginning of time. I don't know whether Adam and Eve were concentrated or not. But obviously, they must have had some power to get the ball rolling. <laughs> right? So, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, well, I was telling you too many stories, because if I depart from one thing, I have to go back in the center, and it's not always easy. So, um, but the teaching of the Buddha is quite unique. I don't know it's unique, you know, truly as truth, as the ultimate truth, but that's the only one I know, you could say. And I've read a number of teachings. But many teachings, just like in ancient time, are still fairly secret, you could say. You know, teaching, when people start actually touching into the mind, into the knowledge of the citta, you go more into a transmission with teachers, you know, transmission with uh, more like, many, not secret, but only a small group of people get close to a teacher to get transmitted, okay? Because once you go into the citta, into the mind, that's what brought me to be um, you know, close to a teacher, was I realized meditation was quite suddenly was opening a vast field of you know, experience I never had before, completely new to me and kind of sometimes frightening, you know. So I said, I better have somebody who guides me there because really I don't have any idea where I'm going. And, you know, once we still have fear, we still have a lot of anxiety and perception, you know, weird perception about ourselves and life, it's really good to be guided. Hmm? The Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teaching made meditation seem very easy. That's why it's so now popular everywhere. People end up meditating, you know, the, the, breath, the you know, stress reduction meditation uh, technique, uh, all these kind of meditation techniques that deals with developing mindfulness. If the teacher hasn't himself or herself done the work of following a path of mindfulness up to a, a certain depth, then they'll be in trouble because at some point people hit fear or they hit some kind of weird phenomena like you know light or some kind of vision or some sort of things that they can be really, they don't know how to interpret it. And maybe they have never had a teaching of Anicca Dukkanata. They never really studied it in depth to the point where your citta is so well, sort of well um, educated in that, and it knows the reality. The reality is like that. It's Anicca Dukkanata. You know, I've never seen anything change, not changing. Now, you could say as a hu very humble human being, I can, maybe you say, well, she only has a small vision of the world, still maybe. But there is something that never changed. It's that the knowing mind that is always here. Mindfulness doesn't see. I never left me, and it hasn't changed. You know, it's still there. What has changed is the quality of maybe balancing all these factors of the past, like uh, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. 
Now, these are, again, words that are easy to understand intellectually, okay? You can define them, you can let story, tell story, to explain to people what these faculties of the mind are, which turn, when they are developed, they are turned into power, strengths, right? And so these faculties really are uh, very important to come to develop them, and a long time, it takes a long time some, sometimes to actually come bring them to a balance. And you know how you learn how to, uh, you know, how to sort of go onto a bicycle for the first time? You have to fall a number of times, don't you? Once the little wheels at the back have taken away, right? Or if you uh, go onto, I've never been a, a trapezist or, uh, you know, a sort of a tight walker, you know. But I can see uh, their balance is always like really going this way and that way. And if they didn't have that, they wouldn't have any balance, right? So the, in the practice, we need to develop the, the patience to not get it right. And you could say that applies to almost anything in our life. If you want to learn something, you know, and I'm not, I can't speak from experience because I'm quite, I was quite impatient myself. But if I, there was something I, I, that impassioned me, then I would have all the patience in the world, of course, you know. But if I wasn't, I was not really attentively impatient to any old thing. So that's what you learn in Buddhism. You become, in my training, you become really patient doing the washing up. You become really patient listening to people that bores you to death. Right? You become incredibly patient with your mind when your mind says at some point, only quite a while before begin, after beginning the training, when you come to the absolute conclusion in your mind that's so liberating, you wonder why it took so long to actually see this, and one day my mind says there's nothing more irritating than a human being. I never dared saying that for a long, long time because I think I was ashamed of saying this. You know, my, my sense of self was holding on this idea that I should not say that, that I hate hope, that the human beings are so damn irritating. Once I said that, I feel relaxed, you know, and I started relating to everybody really nicely. Everybody was fine. No problem. People were my friends after that. You can see how the... You know, I often talk about paradoxes on the, on the path of awakening. Is field is, uh, there's a word in English, but the in French, I don't know if any French here, is covered with, of para, with paradoxes. You know, thrown, paradoxes are thrown all along the path of awakening. So suddenly that was a paradoxical thing, wasn't it? When I say, yeah, people are so, you know, the most people, most irritating thing in the world are human beings. After that, I could smile. I relaxed. I'm repeating what I said before, but you need to hear it twice, I think, some of you. <laughs> if not three times, or four times, a hundred times. Right? So, you know, when the Buddha talks about right intention, you know, on the, on the Noble Eightfold Path, after right view, right intention, which means the thought that you, you know, have in the mind to decide something, for example. You know, a, a, a Tibetan teacher told me once, when I met him a long time ago, uh, he, was a, he was a Western West, uh, Tibetan teacher, and he was uh, uh, in charge of monastery. And he said, you know, to me, 
when I was myself, I was talking with him, I was myself not knowing which way to go about certain things, you know, not disturbing or changing. Just I was, had some question for him. And he said, you know, for me, I just set up an intention in my heart. And then after that, I just go. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, that was good to hear that, isn't it? So you better develop your intention just in case you're going down the wrong road. And that's when intentions are helpful because at least they, they make that clear into your consciousness where you want to go. You might meet a lot of hurdles and a, and a lot of um, you know, obstacles on the way, but that's something once you, uh, you know, use that intention with a, with a Dharma, you could say within this context that I'm part of, then you know that this intention will get the help it needs to do it, to get to what you want to do. And it has never failed me. Even though I've been sick, I've had all kinds of things, you know, but all kinds of obstacles, you know, in this life. Yet, my intention to carry, you know, I will die rather than not following the Dharma anyway. I will be like dead. As far as I'm concerned, my perception will be to be, I will be like dead if I didn't have the Dharma. You know, so I would not die. I would already be dead. I didn't, I didn't die. I didn't need to die physically. I would just be a dead walking, dead walking human. So, um, let me see. Just pause for a few seconds. So, really, um, what the, the what many human beings have not yet understood, though they may have read it, heard it, and so on, but it hasn't been quite, it hasn't gone down to the place where it can be integrated, where this knowledge can be integrated. And this is what I'm going to talk to you about. When you put the mind of many human beings together, and they're still not enlightened, they still don't know themselves. They still don't know the mind truly. They may say they know, but they still don't know truly, completely, profoundly, irreversibly, truly the mind, know the mind. Irreversibly, right? <clears throat> they still, we still have a lot of ideals, you know, a lot of ideals in life. I have no ideals anymore. Even though ideals are beautiful thoughts, I consider the ideals are beautiful ideas and ideas and thoughts. They can be beautiful. And it's like a signpost, you know. This is, I don't know, Provence, you know. I come from Provence, you know. So some of you know it's the south of France along the Mediterranean. So you see Provence and some things are oh, how wonderful. You may not be able to get there, but it still kind of lighten up your, your heart, your, your, your mind. And so ideals can have this beautiful effect on oneself. Unfortunately, the mind is so clever nowadays. We've studied so much. We have developed so much the critical faculty, the conceptual mind. We can almost sort out the whole world, including the planet, including the sun, including the galaxy, including quantum physics, matter, black, gray, green, you know, everything. We can sort out everything, right? Yet, we still don't know the mind. And once you know the mind, this is when compassion arises deeply. Why? 
for a very simple reason, we're walking in the dark. We're walking blind if we not awaken the mind. Truly, we are walking in the dark. And poor human being that we are, in the dark, I'm not talking about anybody here, by the way, but just generally, many people walk in the dark. Now, walking in the dark doesn't mean you are, you've got black glasses you know, in front of you. It's simply that the mind doesn't know what to do with itself. It doesn't know what to do with the body. It doesn't know what to do with life very often. It's still hurt constantly because it doesn't know. It goes around painfully wondering why they are, I'm here, why people are so nasty to me, why am I so nasty to people, why my wife leaves me, why my husband goes out with too many women, why does my dog is so nasty to me, why people are so complaining all the time, and so on. Why I am so miserable with myself going back home. Why am I complaining about me all the time? So, this is why you know, this compassion is, needs to be. You need to see the source of it. The source of it, we know the definition. I feel compassion when I see the suffering of others. I feel compassionate towards others. I feel compassion when I see my neighbor struggling when my dog is dying of painful disease, when my family is dis, you know, distressed for one thing or another, I feel compassion for them. And you have to be careful because some people don't want you to be compassionate towards them. You know, with all these courses on self-empowerment, me first, I can do it. Don't tell me I'm strong enough. Don't be so condescendent. Don't be so patronize, don't patronize me. You know, I'm so sorry you're so sad, you know. I really understand you. You really say, shut up. My mind, you say, well, shut up. I'm strong enough to take care of myself. You know, you have these people when they use nonviolent communication, which, by the way, we studied here. You know, monks doing nonviolent, oh, nuns, doing nonviolent communication. I think it's a wonderful program, by the way. But sometimes there is a time when you do it and the time you don't do it, you know. And when the time, it's not when the wisdom hasn't, this is a big topic. I thought we are five minutes before the end of this talk, but the most important, one of the most important elements that is actually missing on this planet is the fact that there's a lack of balance between compassion and wisdom. Do you understand? Right? You want, you want to be kind and so on, but at the same time, you don't know the nature of the mind. And when you want to be kind, you can attract lots of people if you're charismatic. You can convert them to compassion. You can do compassionate project, you know. There's tons of those in the world now, nowadays. Tons of them. Everywhere you turn, there's a group doing a compassionate action towards another group. With himself or itself doing compassionate action, you know, supporting each other. What is lacking is the knowing of the world is a, the, the knowing the world that is projected out in that this world is our world. What we see is in here. Do you understand? Not the furniture is in here, the perception. The perception of my world here. If I had come here 30 years ago, I say, my God, what is this guy? You know, I'm going to run away, you know, and end up in a really good restaurant and forget all about it, you know. Maybe spend the whole time shopping in. I don't know, Portobello Road or somewhere, you know. Just having fun, but forget about all this kind of Buddhist stuff, you know. 
But now, I'm really happy. I just love my life here. You know? So our perception can change from the same room, can be very different 30 years later, you know. Right? I looked at the, I was living in Hampstead, you know, in London at some point, and I was studying dance at the time and teaching English, I remember. And every time in Hampstead, I have a stock here, I used to look at a little signpost, red signpost, you know, something Vihara, something. And I would never touch it with barge pole, you know, it's like, what are these kind of really weirdos, you know? You know, it's like, I didn't know Hare Krishna yet, you know, <laughs> but they were all in the same bag, you know, it's like, Oh God, you know, that kind of spiritual stuff, you know, is for people that just don't want to be with the world, see the world, or leave the world. You know, the traditional kind of uh, uh, commentary that you get. If you're retired, must be, you must be too weak, you know. So they come to the monastery after that, and they realize, my God, this is not weak at all. You know, I need, maybe in three months I must go, you know, because it's actually a very difficult life here. You know, not difficult in a way that we think. But... Uh, so this aspect of wisdom, maybe, you know, I may have missed a little bit of my, my talk there, but the aspect of wisdom is something that is lacking very deeply. And that's why, why compassion cannot manifest, because this lack of wisdom is, uh, you know, is actually, uh, what is this, uh, uh, sort of creating very, very much, very deeply, the uh, immediately almost a sense of divisiveness. If I'm right, they are wrong then. Those people who don't think like me, they must be wrong. You know? They love, you know, whatever. I don't want to say anything because I could be in trouble. But, um, you know, I watch the news so I know what I could say. But anyway, you like somebody, you know, like another person, you know. And the people who like the same people, they're your friends. Those who don't like the same people, you don't dare seeing it because you you could become their enemy suddenly, you know, without even having done anything. If you say, well, I don't, I'm not sure. It's like little granny, you know, 88 years old, you know, innocently typing on a, you know, desktop. Well, you know, I understand you very well, you know, because for me, I, I made progress. I kind of maybe, I'm just eating twice a week instead of every day, you know, and I'm going to a farm where all the animals are happy bombarded, you know, within the day, the next day, into that kind of, how dare you? You know, this is exactly why compassion cannot last in this world of ours. It can be temporary until we have enough momentum in the other group to go back and say, I kill you if you don't change your mind, if you continue doing that. Once the power of the opposite group is strong enough, to threaten you in the other direction. And you know, the group, we used to laugh with Ajahn Sumedho in the early years, but because he used to say, you know, it was kind of a long time ago for some of you, there was this peace group, you know, everywhere around the world. In fact, it goes back to my parents. My parents were in part, part of the world peace movement, you know, after the Second World War, I remember, right? So it's a peace group. And in this peace group, my, my teacher used to say, you find the most kind of uh, angry people fighting some idealist I ideals that just don't fit quite well in, the, in the, 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 the game, you know? Interesting, yeah? Why? Because we haven't yet trained the mind, okay, to be at peace with both sides without judging, criticizing, Wanting it different. You just observe. That's what meditation is about. Okay? You observe. 
That's what Vipassana is about. You don't observe dumb, dumbly or stupidly or in a state of stupor. You observe awake. You observe with really mindfulness. And then as you observe, then you begin to see what the Buddha is teaching. Anicca Dukkha Anatta is not difficult. It's there, right in front of your face, uh, all the time. But we forget it again and again. That's why mindlessness is forgetfulness. Mindfulness is sati in Pali. It has many words, you know. Uh, you can use many words for mindfulness in the Pali jargon. But sati means remembering, you know. Many spiritual teachings use a word to remember. You know, I remember, I think in the Gurdjieff tradition, they have also this remembering aspect of their practice. You know. So, where are we going after that, beside the cup of tea that will come at some point? Where are we going? If, you know, this inability to um, really understand why these two aspects of the mind cannot be incorporated in your life, of course, it's dangerous to do to incorporate these two aspects, because at some point <laughs> you come to the point where you say, "The world is a world, and that's how it is." And people can think, "Well, I'll just be dull and do nothing there." No, I think the monastery is one of the biggest social action in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Not that you have to all become monks and nuns, but basically. Everybody is invited to walk this path of awakening, you know. In fact, somebody told me, strangely enough, and, I th and he was a scholar, interestingly, yeah. The word bhikkhu, and I have to check it myself, the word bhikkhu, uh, apparently the Buddha did not include just the monks, but even the lay people. Now, this is just, I read it somewhere through a scholarly, you know, work. So, that actually, in his teaching, because actually included also, it's a term that he used for lay people, anybody who could be enlightened. I mean, there has been enlightened people instantly in the time of the Buddha. He never met them. He met them for just a few hours. They were not monks or anything like that, I don't think. And he just got enlightened. Right? And then one of them was killed by the cows after he got enlightened. So don't expect anything from Nibbana to make you more happy and just <laughs> a sure investment for old age, you know, you never know. Karma is uncertain, right? Many people, like all of us, we, the ego, the me mind, has only one program. And I see it in myself again and again, but of course I know it so well. It's like there's a little perking happiness when, uh, I, when there's something for me. Even though I don't believe this me anymore, it's kind of, it's completely, you know, I wouldn't say it's dead, but what I mean is like, it's in its own place, okay? I've been, I put it in its place. And it, you know, just pop up when, when I need you, you know, basically, right? When you're necessary. So I know it too well, right? And so, but I still notice, you know, when I do something, like if I do a diet, you know, it's like immediately, oh, it's for, it's for me. It doesn't say it's for the body and I feel better. There's a little perk, it's me. A little me there, they're just happy. <laughs> it's, still, it's just a feeling. But you feel, and then of course that passes. So you might even abandon your diet because you have given up or the, the feeling of satisfaction wasn't there anymore. <laughs> you know. And the other thing I, I noticed many years ago is that as soon as I has a linear project, A to B to C to D in the mind, 
as a nun, I noticed my energies would rise up. I had a project, you see, project. I, I was going somewhere with my mind. Wow. And then, you know, Anisha struck, the project went, and the whole thing collapsed. You know? <laughs> I, I used to, this is my me, this is my, my, my what did you say, my observation, my study of me, mine, you know. I've got lots of stories, you know. But anyway, so for you, really, if you can go somewhere, you know, after this time, uh, it's very important that to understand compassion, you need also to have an understanding of the mind, which is the aspect of wisdom, okay? The panya, understanding of anicca dukkha understanding that, you know, how the, 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 the mind that the Buddha would call maybe unenlightened mind, how it functions. You need to spend some time knowing very well the misfunctioning of the mind that's not yet awake that don't awaken to his nature. You need to be with that. It's like with a disease. You need to find out how, you know, how it comes, what causes it, until you can understand. And then you stop eating the wrong things, or you stop doing the wrong things, or you stop saying the wrong things. Sometimes our disease of the mind can be restlessness, you know, constant restlessness, con constant agitation, dullness, or whatever. I say, what are you thinking all day long? if you're restless. What are you thinking? Now, immediately you might feel guilty. Oh my God, she's talking about me. You might feel guilty and say, oh yes, I, I think a lot, you know, I think all the time. But for me, I don't see it like this anymore. You know, it's simpler. It's like, if there is no mindfulness, basically the mind goes on to, on to automatic pilot. Okay? It just goes on its own, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> I go back into my little kind of, ch -ch 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 -ch, you know, greet, hatred, and delusion, happily, kind of, on and on, ch -ch 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 -ch, on the way to the cupboard of chocolate and cheese, <laughs> coffee, ch -ch 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 -ch. knock at the door, somebody who made you angry, you want to really even it out, because <laughs> you've been saying, I'm going to tell her something one day, you know, or you go, ch -ch 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 -ch, you know, to, Whatever shop you like, you know, you said, I will never spend another penny on that. And then you find yourself, I don't know, in King's Road and, you know, finding the best dress or whatever. Right? That's I on automatic pilot. Don't blame it. It's blind. Do you understand? Stop your nasty war against me. It's just blind and helpless. The compassion of our heart, say, please. He's maybe maybe you you're here. Help me, please. You know, but you don't hear it. You don't realize that your mind is needed, needs help, needs support, need, needs compassion, needs love, needs patience, needs good food, good resources, good material to really be alive and peaceful and well and com you know all these things that we can read and read and read again and again, years after years. You can code the whole thing, you can make a conference in front of hundreds of people, thousands of people, you know. But knowing, you know, how it works to some extent, I noticed that you can understand intellectually very quickly, but the integration of these things, of compassion, for example, since it, it is our subject, is um, more difficult. It takes a long time 
before you get over the obstacle of, I'll give you another example, just to show you how it works, you know. I was kind of, I've got many examples for compassion, but we all need another hour, so I can't, you know, we, we can't do this. But one last one to show you how to not expect anything from your compassion practice. Do not expect anybody to love you anymore. It, they might. They might. But they might not. Now, for me, I remember when I was a young nun at Chittast, some of you know Chittast, in the, um, whatever, the room that's next to the kitchen, okay, with, uh, there was a bathtub then at some point. When the monks arrived at Chittast, uh, they immediately, immediately set up a bathtub in, the, in one room that could be locked and so in private for Ajahn Sumedho to have a bath from time to time because it was so cold and so, so uncomfortable. Do you know, they saw our teacher might not survive maybe without something hot and warm, you know, and relaxing for his body. But anyway, I was, my, my chore was to clean this room. So dutifully, I was also in the midst of the cleaning this room. I was dutifully trying out with mantras of uh, compassion. You know, may I be well, may I be at peace, may all being be happy and so on. You know. I didn't like this kind of practice, but I thought, I'll try it, you know. I mean, I've been trying it for a while. So I was continuing my experience, my experiment. And it was a bit dark, I have to say. So I was mopping a bit in the dark. And at some point, I go, I arrive in the corner and I say, oh, stop. And somebody can shout at me and really angry with me for trying to corner them. Wow, what a disappointment. Can you imagine me trying spreading meta to the whole world? You know what I mean? And sort of before breakfast, you know, we didn't have any, I don't even know if, no, we did have breakfast, you know, but it was a, it was a, not a, a, quite a simple meal in those days. And, uh, you know, suddenly she felt attacked. She felt terrible, you know, and she had a right. I mean, now I'm more advanced to say people can sing what they want, you know, but at that time I wasn't so advised. How dare you tell me inside? I would not say that, but. How dare you speak to me? Don't you know that I'm spreading meta to the whole world with my broom? <laughs> Can't you see? And you're, as if you, everybody could read my mind, you know? So, when you spread meta, this is the last word before we do something else. Um, when you <laughs> spread meta, please, if, if you do anything, don't ever expect anything from your practice, because if you do, you'll be in for very deep disappointment, either with yourself, which is not too bad, or with others, which is really bad, because then you start criticizing them for not understanding the great job you're doing inside yourself. Me, aren't you noticing what I'm doing? I've been practicing Buddhism now for a few years, and you st still speak to me as a ordinary human being, that I am not anymore. Of course I am not, otherwise I wouldn't be upset. Right? I mean, afterwards, you know, compassion goes together. If you haven't got, if you haven't been born with a sense of humor, just follow this path long enough. And you cannot but be inundated with humor. Okay? Submerge with humor. Because everything you thought right might not be right. Everything you thought was great turned out to be really misery. 
right? And at some point, when your sense of self is not so bogged down by, your, by you being attached to it, once you have left your sense of self a bit on its own and say, yeah, you're a good boy, good girl, you know, but really, I don't need you all the time, you know. Most of the time now, I'll be using my mindfulness, if you don't mind, right? <laughs> Just sit down for a minute, calm down, relax, you know, take a pill, you know, do something. <laughs> you just begin to have a relationship with your, this self, this me, that kind of, you know, wise in the sense you don't want to thing, aggravate things or, you know, but you, you, you also affirm into what you can do and not do, you know, because you trust at some point the wisdom and the compassion of your mind much, much more than me having an idea about things. Because the idea can come also from your own wisdom, from your own compassion. And they are much more attuned with the reality of now, of the immediacy of now, of the situation of now, rather than you still being informed by the grudges you had with somebody two years ago, you know. And still you thought you had let go of it, didn't you? And suddenly it pops up again. You know, you see the person, oh, that one, Still a hater. <laughs> and you should have been all this retreat, you know, sort of. I still remember, I have the lovely memory of one of my dearest sisters. Uh, I won't say her name because I don't want her to go public. But I said to her, Did you have a good retreat? I was in the early, the early years of Chitta. And it was, we felt one, one nun was a great nun, but she was very difficult to live with, I remember at the time. And she's not here anymore, don't worry. And uh, I said, and how is sister so-and-so? Or she said, I spent the whole retreat with her. <laughs> she, her mind was constantly thinking about all the things she find difficult with these nuns, you know, or the hurt or the, the things she'd done to her, you know, the mind, because yeah, she did this and she did that, whatever. whatever. I mean, she might just have thought occasionally about her, do you know what I mean? But she just said, oh, yes, I, I, I lived with her for the whole winter retreat, you know. This is what we do. We live with these old entities, don't we? They're dead. They're already dead. We keep reviving them. They might want to die themselves, but we, they, we keep, no, you will not be forgiven. I will remember you on a nasty old bitch. Got you. <laughs> And you will never come out of that prison as far as I'm concerned, right? And then you go on to the compassion retreat, you know. <laughs> Developing meta, suffusing the whole universe with meta and so on, you know. And then you know whether you have integrated or not this death. In your anicca understanding of anicca impermanence, the understanding of emptiness, you know, that this thought is insubstantial, you know. It goes right back, you know, jump at your face as soon as you... So its substance was still strong enough to kind of flash up, you know, straight into your face. So I don't know who's making tea here. I don't mind. I can enjoy talking. I don't mind about this topic. It's kind of, it's one of my favorite topics in a way. You see, if I had listened to my mind, the first response to that title, I remember it was a sense of, oh, no. Why, why, why this title? You know, but I'm curious, so I decided to go down the path of curiosity and exploration. Not just on the world level, but what is it that, you know, 
motivated this person to ask this question. So that's the thing you can get into when you practice. You can have a deeper view. You can go into live behind the, the appearance of things like that. It's kind of much more interesting to live with that and just kind of um, so sort of create a world just out of first kind of contact with people. And, the world, and, and you can see your mind, the believing mind of the first contact and then the believing mind of the second contact after you think a little bit about it. And then the best place is actually the place where the mind is empty. You know, so let go of all his perception, views, and so on, and you still look at it and you see the world as it is without the filters of me, I like, me, I don't like, me, I think it should be different, me, I think I'll improve that, me, what a stupid thing, you know. You stop having those filters when the mind is empty. So, I leave you on this, and hopefully this would have been enough of a bit of... I was going to say a word that Trumpa used to use, enough of manure to continue your path of practice. You know, he was saying all the obstacles and all the it's like manure. You can keep turning it, you know, and it becomes something different. You know, that helps things to grow and so on. And I, I forgive me if I forgot Trumpa in the wrong way, but that's what I remember. So now we have our wonderful Thai angels devas who are always, always supporting what we love most for many people, our stomach. <laughs> and, 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 um, what do you call that? And, <laughs> and our taste buds, you know, the taste buds, which are very trainable. I have had a whole program of my training, training my taste buds recently, not that long ago. And, you know, we tend to think the mind is nasty and they can't do what I want, can't do this, can't do that. When I decided, to, when suddenly I had a little illumination, say, maybe my mind is okay, but my taste bud needs a bit of training. That's all. They need to actually, when I see them kind of start being activated, I say, be quiet now, just calm down. Because you tend to think it's your thought that's a problem, don't you? You tend to think it's your mind thinking about this thing, or your, something is missing. It's your emotional world, you know, you're lacking something. You're just suffering. No, it's my little taste bud, you just have the rhythm. Sugar, nice sugar. Ding, 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 sugar. Ding, 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 ding. Fruit juice. Ding, 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 ding. And they're not difficult, you know. Taste bud world is not a difficult one. When we had a, a retreat here, starting at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, with uh, going to bed at 11, finishing the day at 11. And for that year, 1990-91, no breakfast, you know, in the wintertime, freezing. Right? Well, my taste bud was a was disgusting tea in the morning that somebody was preparing. They were very happy, delighted, so glad to have something to do. Do you know they, were, they thought it might be abandoned? No, no, no. So you can see, I'm just telling you this, because it's a true story, but it might not be understood by everybody, you know. But anyway, if we pick it up, you might want to use this story for your own training. Yes? Please. We're going to have 15 minutes of um, break here. 
And you come back at, let's say, half past, or 25 to 4, right? And then we have a session of question and answer.